This is The Guardian. There's a lot of noise around the Indigenous voice to Parliament. The voice. The voice. The voice. An Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The voice. The voice. The voice. With Australians going to the polls before the end of the year, the Prime Minister says it's up to you to decide. The success of this referendum will depend on millions of conversations, reassuring Australians of all backgrounds and all faiths and beliefs. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Voice AMA, where you ask the questions and we give you the answers. Each fortnight, I'll be joined by a panel of elders, constitutional lawyers, young people, activists, campaigners, academics and more to answer your questions and cut through the noise. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This week, I'm joined by Gamilaroi and Yularoi journalist Lorena Allen. She's also Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor. Welcome, Lorena. Hi, Laura. I'm also joined by veteran journalist Kerry O'Brien, who has co-authored The Voice to Parliament Handbook with Yes Campaigner Thomas Mayo. Welcome, Kerry. Hi. And lastly, Saibai and Kadal woman Tale Ilu, who's from Stacia in Cape York. She's advised the Queensland government on the state voice model there and has partnered with the Australian Electoral Commission to tackle barriers to voter enrolment. She also has experience working in Canberra at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and the National Indigenous Australians Agency. Big bio. <laughs> Welcome, Tali. Hello. <laughs> So I want to go to some Guardian reader questions. We've got a whole host of reader questions flooding in. The first one is, why is the Yes campaign so invisible compared to the No campaign in the media and on social media? Kerry, do you agree with this, that the Yes campaign kind of has a smaller profile than the No campaign? Well, it hasn't had the profile that I'd have liked to see it have, but I I think that's a question that you could direct to the mainstream media Uh, as to why the No campaign is getting so much coverage uh, without, uh, I believe, enough journalistic attempts to strip away the the mistruths uh, and the deliberate attempts to confuse uh, with material that is not actually relevant. And uh, having looked at the pamphlet that's just been brought out by the No campaign, I see no departure from their standard operations. We'll get to those pamphlets in a minute, but Lorena, do you agree with that, that some sections of the media at least have been publishing the No campaign line fairly uncritically? Yeah, I do agree with that. Um, And it's a daily 
event now. It's quite frustrating for us to be painstakingly fact-checking when we publish to see there's sort of there's some exaggerations and mistruths and misinformations that are published as fact. Yeah, it's really frustrating. But just to answer the question about whether the Yes campaign is less visible than the No campaign, mm. the Yes campaigners have, I mean, I've put this to them really directly and, and they say, we have 15,000 volunteers on the ground. We're door knocking, we're fundraising, we're doing, you know, school fates and stalls and there's all this community activity that is not visible to the mainstream media, but it's happening nonetheless. So so that's what they say they're doing now. But it's not as easy to run a yes campaign as it is to run the no campaign. I mean, the no campaign is easy. You can just oppose it. You know, mm. you, and, and it's clear they can say any old thing and, and get away with it. Right. Grassroots efforts don't necessarily make headlines that's every right. day. That's right. That's what they say. Tali, from your perspective, do you see one campaign or the other gaining more traction, getting more attention? Uh, in terms of remote Cape York and Torres Strait, um, I feel like, you know, the No campaign has gotten sensational headlines and being shared on social media a lot more. And what really impacts, I feel, in my region is the lack of telecommunications, but also um, because of bad telecommunications over the decades, bad digital literacy, you know, people um, trying to understand the information that's been shared out there, you have um, issues with, can I trust this? Um, Is it current? Is it reliable? Um, Is it from an authority? As you share things on social media, you know, those practices haven't really been understood as, as much as, you know, down south, you go to university and you have your academic class and you understand how to sort through information. Because of the lack of good telecommunications up there, we haven't had the time to prepare ourselves for such a big conversation. And that's really impacted. Mm. You see it through COVID, you know, all these sensational headlines being shared in our region that's caused this big mistrust in the vaccines. And now it's happening again with The Voice because no one's really invested in digital literacy up home. So Mm. yeah, at this present time, I see a lot more of the no sensational headlines uh, coming through. And that's probably going to be quite an impact on how people are going to vote in my region, at least. Mm. There's also been a lot of concern about misinformation and the essays or, or pamphlets. These were published online this week and will be mailed out to voters later this year. Lorena, what did we learn from these pamphlets about the thinking of the yes and no camps at this stage of the referendum? Well, one thing I need to point out is that these pamphlets are not fact-checked. They are the opinions of both the yes and the no MPs involved in writing them. And I think as the days roll on, we'll have there'll be plenty of argument about the content of those pamphlets. So when you read them, and I encourage you to read them, read them in the understanding that they are not fact-checked by an independent authority, okay? So when the yes essay was written by Labor MPs and approved by politicians who've backed the referendum, mm. and they say the three main things it offers are recognition, listening, and better results. They're saying, you know, uh, it stands to reason that because the government has the power to make laws for Aboriginal people, we should consult Aboriginal people when we make those laws. Um, so it's 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 a nice distilled, clear message. Mm-hmm. The no side um, have said the things that they have said in the past. It's divisive along racial lines, which is something that's been rebutted frequently by the other side, that it's legally risky, again, it's been rebutted, and that it's divisive and we don't have enough detail. So those are the things that they've been saying for months and months and months. Mm. And a lot of people have been at pains to point out may not be entirely correct. Nevertheless, we have the pamphlets now and the cynic in me says there's a new front on which people can argue really, with with their publication this week. 
Since they were published on Tuesday, there has been some controversy around these pamphlets. Tell me about that, Lorena. Well, what we know is that the constitutional lawyer, Greg Craven, who has been a critic of The Voice in the past but has now said he will support it wholeheartedly, was furious on Tuesday at being quoted in the No pamphlet um, as saying that The Voice was was risky. He said that he explicitly asked the opposition leader's office not to use him in the pamphlet and he feels that he was ignored. Mm. Kerry, what did you make of the arguments published in these pamphlets? I haven't heard the No campaign able to point to any errors or misstatements uh, from the Yes campaign. Let me just give you one illustration of how the No campaign uh, runs its pamphlet. They, they do, I think it's 10, 10 reasons they say as to why we should vote No. One of them is the voice, it won't help Indigenous Australians. Now, how can they possibly say that? It won't. Not it might not. It won't help Indigenous Australians. Mm. They are in no position to say that. I think you can argue a carefully thought through justifiable case as to why The Voice is very likely to help by closing the gap on a number of areas simply because the policymakers will have greater access to the word, if you like, the the wisdom of of, uh, grassroots Indigenous communities uh, when they are putting their policies together which will enhance the quality and the relevance and the deliverability of the policies and therefore close the gaps. But to actually say, as the No campaign do, it won't help Indigenous Australians, they just cannot possibly sustain that. They just can't. Do you believe the wording in the No campaign pamphlet was more inflammatory than you expected, Kerry? Uh, No, not than I expected. Uh, There is a web of fabrication that is reflected in the No campaign, uh, but it is reflected in in this pamphlet and it doesn't surprise me, no. And we could go through each of these different headlines. Uh, When they talk about it would be creating two Australias, it would somehow elevate Indigenous Australians to a position of greater privilege. The Solicitor General of Australia, along with a raft of High Court judges, senior preeminent uh, constitutional academics and so on, all of whom are saying essentially the same thing, that this voice does not represent risk to the constitution, uh, to the court system, to the system of executive government. Mm. I mean, these pamphlets will come with the weight of being sent out from the Electoral Commission. Is there a concern that people won't hear this message, that they haven't been fact-checked and will take this as gospel, that this will spread misinformation? Yes, They will read this stuff and they will think that it's legitimate because it's written in black and white. But I also think they've already done that job on social media. Like the the social media campaign from No is uh, is going off on on Twitter and Facebook and it's being shared and all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories are, are growing from that stuff. So I think that the pamphlet is just one aspect of a wider campaign that's already taken off in the community. I want to move on to a reader question around the generational divide when it comes to support for The Voice. One reader asks, 
why is the over 55s cohort the most likely to vote no? Is it from going up amidst latent racism? I'm 67 and this horrifies me that young people who are our future will vote yes and conservative older Australians will sabotage the vote. Uh, Firstly, I just want to look a little bit more closely at the polling that they're referring to here in this question. It's last week's Guardian Essential poll. Lorena, can you tell us a bit about that polling? Okay, so that poll showed that the support for the Indigenous voice has dipped. Uh, 47% of respondents were in favour of the vote, of yes, uh, 43 opposed and 10% who said they were unsure. And and it's true that there's a generational sort of divide. Younger people are much more in in favour of it. They can't understand why this is such a hard thing for the country to do. Older people maybe come with different prejudices, they had a different experience growing up and don't know us, haven't met us, Mm. you know, are a bit unsure and and fearful. I want to go to Kerry on that point. Kerry, you wrote in the Voice to Parliament handbook that you yourself grew up largely ignorant of the true history of this country for a time. And I'm wondering whether you share this reader's concerns that older voters might lean no because of lack of education or because of the the kind of heightened racism of the time that they grew up in? I think that's too simplistic. Mm. Um, And no, I don't don't accept that, that over 50s uh, might sabotage the outcome. I mean, a lot of those over 50s will go to that vote uh, believing that and, and hoping that they're vote is going the right way, that they're actually trying to cast their vote in a responsible way. Mm. Although I would argue that a part of that responsibility, if you feel you don't know something enough, is to make the effort to find out. And I think that you'd you'd expect some element of sort of quote-unquote safety and conservatism in the way older people might approach things, but that doesn't mean that their conservatism is reflected in a no vote. And the argument, I believe, is is, is a strong argument that this is actually a conservative pretty safe proposition. But um, the young people, uh, I've always felt that the key to ridding us of prejudice uh, is education. And you see that in younger Australians. Uh, You see that in the way they go after climate change as an issue. Uh, I think that young people have grown up in an environment of less racial prejudice. Tyler, you've been working with the AEC to increase voter enrolment. What do you see as the power of young voters, particularly in this referendum? Uh, I have to agree with Kerry about, you know, education being um, the best base for it. Um, I think as, you know, this younger generation have grown up around a different education system where you increasingly have been taught Australia's true history and its colonial past and how that past has impacted the current social and economic outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And, you know, that's definitely going to be at the back of their minds when they go to vote. But, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because despite young Australians making up so much um, of the population, it's we're not really in the cohort of people who are, you know, owners of big publications or media enterprises. We're not always at the the seat in parliament or high courts and things like that. So, you know, we're voters, but we're more likely to be influenced than be the big influences in this big national discussion. I want to go back to an element of this reader question, which is a concern around racism in the campaign. They're clearly concerned that it will be a deciding factor in the outcome. Are you, Lorena? Yeah, I am. You know, I am. And it's already playing out in playgrounds and in 
you know, in our lives already. Uh, Anipat talked at Uluru in May about this avalanche of racism that we're all experiencing, and I think that that's very true. Mm-hmm. We are all feeling feeling that. And racism will be an element in this campaign. There's no, there's no hiding from that fact. Um, so, yeah, it, it's definitely an element. I mean, many of our mob I talk to feel like this is a referendum on our right to live in our own country. And it's not what the Yes campaign wants, but it is what people are feeling um, because we are asking the 90-odd percent of non-Indigenous Australia, the rest of Australia, to vote on our rights, on our future mm. in, the, in the land. And that is a huge burden that that very small minority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are carrying. Mm. Um, so it does feel very personal. Kerry? I think the way this campaign has been conducted uh, has been an open invitation to the racists in our nation to come out of the woodwork and vent. And now with social media, they're able to do that without having to look you in the eye as they do it. They can do it anonymously. They can do it in a cowardly way. And when I heard Peter Dutton accusing the Prime Minister of re-racialising Australia, it was the pot calling the kettle black. The truth is that it is precisely that kind of terminology that has been, I think, a part of the process of inviting the racists amongst us to come out and be heard. Uh, I mean, you hear things like, oh, it's going to mean that more white people will claim to be uh, Indigenous so they can jump on the gravy train, like as if there's going to be some amazing flow of cash. You know, we hear some people say, oh, look, I'm worried because I'm told that we're all going to have to pay rent to continue to live in the houses we own. We're going to have to pay rent to Indigenous people. These things are just fantasies, but they follow a pattern. They follow the pattern of the Mabo case where we were all told, we non-Indigenous Australians living in urban Australia, that we were going to lose our backyards, where when the WIC judgment came out, pastoralists were being told that they were going to lose their property to Indigenous people. Those things just didn't happen. In the plebiscite on marriage equality, we were told that it was going to be the end of religious freedom. And you you can look at the Republican model, the way the Republican referendum was run by those who didn't want it. It was about divide and defeat. You defeat by dividing the people who are otherwise likely to vote yes. You create confusion, you sow misinformation, and you sow fear, and you win. Now, that is what is behind the no campaign in this referendum and it's reflected in this pamphlet. Tali, are you also concerned about racism in the referendum campaign? You know, for us in in remote areas, the I think what's important to note is the structural racism and these systems that keep our populations at a disadvantage, uh, especially like enrolling, for instance, you need a driver's license and IDs to get on the electoral roll uh, when you don't have those services physically in where you are or even in the region where you are. That's increasingly harder. You know, births, deaths and marriages, people can go down to um, the service provider and, and sign up and get your, you know, start getting your IDs sorted like these services aren't always available or readily available where we are. You know, that lack of access to telecommunications, better telecommunications and internet is a reason why we can't get many people enrolled through those mechanisms. So we have to rely on our community members to be trained up to then enrol people to vote. You know, those are the structural issues that are making 
it less likely for individuals to enrol to have a say on this voice. Yeah, it's it's those things that I think people really want to see change. It's the structural racism that we have to deal with every day, not just the micro, you know, aggressions. Next, the question of elites and the consultation around the voice. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I want to move on to the next reader question, and it's about the process that led to The Voice. They ask, what role, if any, did Indigenous elders and communities play in proposing and designing The Voice's policy? Media has reported that some communities haven't even heard of The Voice, and that makes me worried that this is another policy cooked up in Canberra. Some quick fact-checking here, Lorena. How consultative were the Uluru Dialogues that led to this call for a constitutionally enshrined voice? This has not come from Canberra. Okay, that's the answer to to our reader's question there. This was not cooked up in Canberra. So if we go back a little further, when John Howard was Prime Minister, one of the last things he did before he was booted out was to promise constitutional recognition, symbolic constitutional recognition of Aboriginal people. And that idea has been maintained and amended and changed and worked on ever since by successive governments, mostly Liberal, but some Labor governments. In 2017, the Referendum Council had a series of dialogues that culminated in a meeting at Uluru, and there were 13 regional dialogues where hundreds and hundreds of Aboriginal and Islander people came along and were consulted in, you know, shall I list them, Cairns, Brisbane, Ross River, Dubbo, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne, Hobart, Adelaide, Perth, Broome, Darwin, all over the place. Well done. (laughs) So they were capped at 100 participants, but other people wanted to join. 60% of the places were reserved for First Nations and traditional owner groups. 20% were reserved for community organisations and others for individuals. And then out of all of that, there was the Constitutional Convention at Uluru where 250 people came together and they signed the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Um, Mm. And that has been the underpinning all of the work from then to now. Mm. The No campaign has really jumped on this idea that it wasn't consultative. They've been saying that the voice to parliament is being pushed by elites as some sort of power grab. And also in their essay this week, they say the process has been rushed and heavy handed. And they claim, you know, as evidence, there was no constitutional convention to properly consider options and details. Kerry, how does that stack up? Well, I would think you'd find that proportionately per head of population, uh, there was a much wider consultation amongst Indigenous people about the Uluru, what became the Uluru Statement from the Heart 
than the consultation that went into the writing of our constitution as a nation. Mm. I don't think you need to say much more than that, but the truth is there was very, very significant consultation around Australia and, of course, not every Indigenous person was consulted. Of course they weren't. How could you possibly? I've also written about, you know, my personal history uh, and the experiences of the immediate generations before me. So to consider any Aboriginal person who's succeeded in, in the country that we live in now as some kind of elite is beyond offensive. And to call somebody like a Megan Davis an elite or a Marcia Langton an elite, Megan Davis grew up in, uh, with a single mum in one of the toughest uh, urban environments in Australia in the area of Logan, which is a part of Brisbane, Marcia Langton has talked about the abject poverty in which she grew. There are those who who want to bring them down, who want to somehow debase their credibility for their own ends, would have us believe that they're elites. There are a few things in this debate that make me angrier than that because it is such a fundamental lie. I mean, I've said my grandmother used to say she was born behind barbed wire in a, in a prison camp and grew up on a, on a really strict Anglican mission in far northwest New South Wales. She got a year of schooling in her life, delivered with the cane by the mission manager's wife, not even a teacher, and they sent her off to work at 14 as a shearer's cook. Mm. Um, she had five kids. They, were all, they all moved around constantly to keep ahead of the welfare board, which then for a century had the legal right to take every one of her children if they could catch her. And that's how she kept her family together. When my father was born, he was sent out to work at the age of 14 to help support his family, even though he was really talented mathematician, he was a bright student. And so they poured everything they had into making sure that my cousins and I got the opportunities they didn't have. So, and I know that story is replicated all across Australia among Aboriginal people. So the pressure was on our generation to make something of that opportunity that they never got, Mm. you know, to finish school, to finish university, to get a good job, to be qualified, to speak up on behalf of all those people who went before you who were given not just no opportunity but were actively denied their basic human rights. So to call those Aboriginal people on both sides of the camp of yes and no, elites, because I consider that the no side, by the same definition, should be considered elite, right? It's offensive in the extreme. Tale, I just want to go back to that question around consultations. You are from a remote community and you've advised state and federal governments about issues in remote communities. How consultative were the Uluru Dialogues in in your area? Uh, Well, from my understanding, there was a regional dialogue on Thursday Island. I wasn't there for it at the time. I think I was still working here in Canberra. Um, But I think what people forget is that one physical regional dialogue isn't the start and end of a conversation. We have regional leaders Mm. who have been working on issues and talking about having a say on many issues across the board for decades. And, you know, just because there is one physical consultation doesn't mean that that is the be all and end all of a conversation relating to something as big as the voice or having a a greater say on policies and issues that affect us. Mm. I just want to go to the final question from our readers, which is about why First Nations people really need a voice. This reader asks, lobbying is the normal way of attracting the attention of and pushing a cause to parliament. Why did the Indigenous community require a special process in order to do the same and and hopefully achieve their objectives? Tali, I feel like you'd have a lot to say about that. (laughs) 
Uh, I really don't like that lobbying is the normal way to do things. Um, I find it really inequitable. You know, the conversation around the elite before, um, you know, what is elite? Is it proximity and access to power? Is it, you know, money? Is it the people that you know? You know, all these things play out um, in in lobbying. And uh, in my personal experience in trying to get a telecommunications tower for my remote community because we have 3G still in the 5G era, and that impacting on health responsiveness and calling triple zero and looking at your bank account, we had to lobby government to give us what I think is a standard piece of infrastructure, telecommunications, like every Australian needs that. And I was so distraught at the fact that we needed to lobby and work with um, bureaucrats who didn't really understand the full effect of how bad telecommunications affected a remote community. Um, And that is when all my understanding of government and parliament came into play. Like when we talk about elite, that's really, I guess, um, what served me well was the ability to understand what was going on and try and get something for my community in time Mm. before a federal election. Understanding all those things really played into us getting something, lobbying for a critical piece of infrastructure that will Mm. now serve us well in a referendum because we'll be able to, yeah, be more educated about the yes and no vote. Not every community has a former advisor to the federal government living there, though, (laughs) right? Exactly. Um, And, you know, remoteness cuts you off from access to power. But uh, politicians regularly come to Canberra. So when I think about The Voice, I think about is it going to increase our access to power, our access to those privileges? So that's what I find interesting about this conversation. (laughs) Kerry, Lorena, why can't Indigenous people rely on lobbying as the main source or the main way of speaking to government? Well, there aren't aren't too many uh, Indigenous leaders who can lift a phone and get through to a Prime Minister the way some other very powerful Australians do, whether they be captains of industry, uh, whether they be big political donors or whatever. Uh, But uh, uh, there's more to it than that. Knowing the history we now know of colonial and post-colonial Australia and knowing that the original injustices were perpetrated in the most appalling ways and maintained and maintain much of the fundamental inequality to this day. I believe we have a moral and civic imperative to take this step to address the wrongs in a real and sustained way and close those gaps. Mm. What the Uluru Statement proposes is both symbolic and practical, and I just it, it is a huge pivotal moment for this country. Lorena, did you want to add anything? What I would say is that in 1967, Australians voted overwhelmingly, yes, to include... Aboriginal people in the Constitution. That gave the federal government ever since power to make laws on our behalf. Not good laws, just laws. And this is the finishing touches to that referendum because it stands to reason that if you are going to give the government special powers to make laws for Aboriginal and Islander people, you should ask those people about those laws. There is no mechanism in this country to do that at this point. And that is what The Voice represents and that is why there's such a push for it to be enshrined in the Constitution. I think that's all we have time for. Lorena, Kerry, Tale, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. That was Tale Elu, Kerry O'Brien and Lorena Allen. 
A note on the controversy surrounding the No Campaign pamphlet, No Campaign leader Jacinta Numpajimpa-Price has not backed down from using Professor Greg Craven's quotes, arguing that the No essay makes clear he does support The Voice. In a statement, she says, quote, Professor Craven voiced some very pertinent concerns early in the conversation. It's only right that we should be able to promote those concerns that somebody on the yes side has with constitutional change. This is the first episode of The Voice AMA, and there'll be many more each fortnight leading up to the referendum. Please do send in some questions for the next episode to voicequestions at theguardian.com. We'll also be posting specific themes or topics that we want questions for on The Guardian Live blog and on The Guardian Australia Instagram account over the next few weeks. So do keep an eye out and send in your thoughts. This episode was produced by me, Phoebe McElraith, and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Catch you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.